Now, the rest of the story. If only it had... If only it had even by the furthest stretch of the imagination, if only it had been considered great art, then perhaps it would not have aroused such righteous wrath. And yet examined by even the most sympathetic eyes, it can be described only as a drawing. Clever, a competent illustration, yes, but my goodness, no greatness about it. So how come it created a scandal? What was so sinister about the picture? Well, before you decide, I want you to hear the rest of the story. In 1840, the temperance movement was a powerful force in British society. Tens of thousands contributed money to more than a hundred anti-drinking organizations. The most influential church leaders supported such groups. Among the enthusiastic patrons was Queen Victoria herself. Now, the picture I was telling you about, it was sketched by an artist named John Calcott Horsley in the year 1843. The picture was divided into three sections, the most prominent of which depicted a large family dining together, but not merely dining, they were drinking. Now, it's clear that the beverage in the illustration is alcoholic, if only by the shape of the glasses. The intolerable excess is displayed in the foreground. A very young child is drinking also. Overwhelmed by the consequent avalanche of protests, artist Horsley turned Fink. The drawing, he insisted, was not his idea. Not exclusively at any rate. Horsley had been put up to it, he said, by somebody else, by a man named Henry Cole, Sir Henry Cole. That was an outrageous suggestion, especially considering that Sir Henry was an intimate friend of none other than Prince Albert. But what do you know? Sir Henry Cole confessed. He had indeed commissioned John Horsley to illustrate the scene, and he didn't care who knew about it. In fact, he was proud of it. But temperance advocates remained adamant. Through this drawing, Horsley and Cole were promoting drunkenness, and the fact that it was now actually being copied and circulated made matters all the worse. True enough, approximately 1,000 reproductions of that picture had found their way into various hands through various means. The fact that two other scenes in the same sketch depicted clothing the naked and feeding the hungry, that was insufficient to still the wagging tongues. It was that one prominent scene which counted most to the moralists, the drawing of a Victorian family, Three generations sitting at the same festive table, glasses raised in a toast, apparently to the viewer, a toast to the recipient of the illustration, which Sir Henry Cole had commissioned for reproduction because he, Sir Henry, because he'd been unable to keep up with his correspondence that holiday season. I said because he, Sir Henry, had been unable to keep up with his correspondence that holiday season. Therefore, on that same sketch, this simple message was inscribed, A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. That's right. The mass-reproduced pasteboard illustration which created all the fuss was the world's first... the world's first Christmas card. Now you know the rest of the story. Thanks for watching. Check out some of our other videos and don't forget to like the video and subscribe. Just click the logo on the left.
Now, the rest of the story. By the mid-17th century, it had gotten way out of hand in England. The authorities had no choice but to consider making it against the law. Far as anyone knew, it had never been banned before anywhere. And if the British government did make it illegal, would enforcement be feasible? According to the observers upon whose written recollections history is based, this suspect something had often led to rioting in the streets, had even caused church services to be invaded by unruly mobs, abomination, prostitution, profanity, the Puritan authorities called it. And at last, in 1652, by an official act, it was abolished. Again in England, it was strictly legally taboo, beginning in 1652. And yet, as today's law enforcement agencies have difficulty restricting the use of certain drugs, British authorities of more than 300 years ago found the prohibition of one, one public habit to be almost impossible. I think we can say this. After 1652, it was no longer visible. It was as much of today's drugs and gambling and pornography and prostitution driven underground. That is, it still happened, just not openly. Seven years later, in 1659, it was outlawed in the new world of New England. According to this legislation, designed for preventing disorders arising in several places within this jurisdiction, offenders would be fined. A penalty more harsh, quite probably any penalty at all, would perhaps have been unnecessary in these staunch Puritan surroundings, for indeed, as stated in the New England Law of 1659, such an offense was to the great dishonor of God. What adds to the fascination of these historical footnotes is that apparently the aforementioned offense was an offense in no other place and at no other time in all history. I say apparently for such research could be endless, and yet we've explored the customs and laws past and present of Russia and China and Japan and Europe and Africa and South America. We can't find it any place prohibited. Nowhere can we find a tradition enforced or a law on the books like those of Old England and New England 300 years ago. Anywhere else at any time in recorded history, you could have gotten away with it. But not there and not then. It was legally prohibited in England for eight years, between 1652 and 1660. And it was prohibited for 22 years, between 1659 and 1681, in the New World. Remember that. It was prohibited in our New World. Yet so powerfully was this practice protested in the land that was to become the United States of America that the effects of its suppression were to be felt for two centuries more. In the early 1900s, no student at the Boston Latin School could have told you what it was. And still in 1847, no New England college would officially recognize its existence, a condition perpetuated throughout the professional community of Boston until 1856 and throughout the public academic community of that city until 1870. And yet, despite the one-time threat imposed by colonial legislation, despite the distant cries of paganism, like our contemporary consternation over commercialization, Americans simply could not, still cannot kick the habit of it, of, of observing Christmas. And now you know the rest of the story. Thanks for watching.
Check out some of our other videos and don't forget to like the video and subscribe. Just click the logo on the left. The rest of the story. You ever heard the fairy tales of Johannes Niemann? In particular, do you happen to know his story of the soldiers who wouldn't fight? It goes like this. Once upon a time, long, long ago, two mighty kingdoms went to war. Their armies fought for months, slaughtering one another quite efficiently through the interminable summer and the terrible fall. Then somebody remembered it was Christmas. The sun shone brightly that December morning, but the mist was slow to clear, and when it did, it revealed yesterday's battlefield thinly blanketed in white. The silence was broken by a voice, the voice of one of the soldiers calling out across the battlefield to his enemies. The voice, struggling in a language that was not its own, shouted, Come out, we want to talk. Moments later, two of yesterday's enemies were standing in the middle of the misty white battleground, shaking hands and smiling. Then there were two more, and then four more. Until the place where their comrades had perished only hours before was teeming with a joyous throng of former foes. Nobody wanted to kill anybody, all agreed. So some exchanged gifts, cigars, candy, jars of jam, all of the modest treasures lonely soldiers come to prize. Others serenaded new friends with carols in native tongues, while the rest cut little Christmas trees and adorned them with makeshift candles. And then one soldier brought out a big round ball, while his new companions from the other army laid out on the battlefield a playing field and with the paraphernalia of a new, abandoned war. The men fashioned a couple of goals and for hours they played a wonderful game which one team won but nobody cared. Days passed. The former enemies were now friends, playing games, repairing shelters, swapping stories, marveling together at the miracle of Christmas which had made them all as one. More than a week went by before the generals showed up. Why aren't you fighting, they demanded. The soldiers shrugged. We weren't angry at anyone, so we didn't want to fight anymore. The generals were furious. It's treason, they declared. They made all of their troops return to their battle formations and prepare to make war. For quite some time, the new friends tried to make it look good, but their commanders eventually caught on and escalated their threats. So reluctantly, today's friends became tomorrow's enemies once more. You say you've never heard the fairy tales of Johannes Niemann? Perhaps that's because there are none. His story of the soldiers who wouldn't fight, that story is completely true, utterly factual. You see, he, Lieutenant Johannes Niemann of the 133rd Saxon Regiment, was one of those soldiers who laid down his weapons and befriended his foes. A German soldier who, with the aid of his comrades and his British enemies, countless thousands, created something now called the most remarkable front-wide truce in military history. For the war that held its breath in its first Christmas season, the conflict very nearly smothered in its own infancy by the unexpected intrusion of peace on earth, that conflict would go on to extinguish 13 million lives and inflict agony on 26 million others, a mass murder snatched from the jaws of brotherhood by the generals and the politicians. We call it the First World War. You've been reading about it since you were in school. But now, 
Now you know the rest of the story. Thanks for watching. Check out some of our other videos and don't forget to like the video and subscribe. Just click the logo on the left. Now, the rest of the story. During our last visit, you met an aspiring attorney named Bing Crosby. Today, let's meet an aspiring engineer named Francis, who was born in Hoboken, New Jersey, the son of a fireman. He demonstrated a remarkable aptitude for journalism while still a teenager. He wound up at the Stevens Institute of Technology in an engineering program. Then one evening in 1933, Francis took his fiancée, Nancy, to a vaudeville house in Jersey City. Performing that night was crooner Bing Crosby. Francis had never heard Bing in person before, but he was so immensely and immediately impressed that he vowed that very night that he, Francis, would quit school and become a professional singer, and he did. And, of course, you've guessed by now that Francis was Frank Sinatra. But that's not quite the rest of the story. You see, Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra were related. They knew it, but I doubt you ever did. And the relationship is really unbelievable, particularly considering that both of these crooners, Crosby and Sinatra, were also related to composer Irving Berlin as well. How in the world could that be? Well, Irving Berlin, a hundred years old, this May 11, was Russian-born, was brought to the United States by his parents in 1893. Irving Berlin was kind of a quirky composer. Do you know that he wrote most all of his myriad master works in the key of F-sharp major? But he wrote on an especially built piano which could shift gears. The piano itself could shift into different keys automatically. Few composers who ever lived have given the world so much melody. Alexander's Ragtime Band, God Bless America, Easter Parade, White Christmas. My goodness. It was Bing Crosby who debuted White Christmas in the 1942 classic motion picture Holiday Inn. And yet Crosby and Sinatra were related to Irving Berlin otherwise. As even more incredibly, all three of them were related to British playwright and composer Noel Coward. In 1953 were published 51 original songs by Noel Coward's musical productions, the volume entitled The Noel Coward Songbook. It remains a favorite among professionals and everyday music lovers alike. Again, I said 53 original songs. Actually, Noel Coward composed almost 100 and the lyrics to go with him. Mad Dogs and Englishmen, I'll See You Again. All of his songs possess the elegance, the sophistication, the charm, which so many subsequent songwriters have tried to capture in vain. So how are these four musical greats related? They're related as you would never imagine, not by blood, of course, but by an incredible something in common. Few composers, few have contributed as much to the delight of the world as have Noel Coward and Irving Berlin. Few interpreters of music have placed their stamps so indelibly on their art as have Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby. And yet none of them, not one of them, neither Crosby nor Coward nor Sinatra nor Irving Berlin himself, not one of these incomparable music men could either write 
or even read music. And now you know the rest of the story. Thanks for watching. Check out some of our other videos and don't forget to like the video and subscribe. Just click the logo on the left. Author Philip Van Doren Stern got the idea one winter morning in 1938 while he was shaving. He was shaving and the entire story came to him beginning to end right there in front of the bathroom mirror. But Philip would not write the story down until a year later and he would not try to sell the story until four more years had passed and even then nobody would buy it. He tried to interest magazines in publishing it. He was turned down by everything from the Saturday Evening Post to the local farm journals. Finally, a movie studio bought the story, which the author had entitled The Greatest Gift. RKO Radio Pictures purchased the property at the suggestion of Cary Grant, by the way. Cary Grant thought the hero might be a suitable role for himself someday. And yet, try as they might, RKO screenwriters simply could not adapt the story to a movie-worthy script. So more years passed. RKO sold The Greatest Gift to another movie maker who had just organized a new company called Liberty Films. That producer-director's name, by the way, was Frank Capra. And under his loving guidance, Philip Stern's little Christmas story did grow into one of the most moving and heartwarming tales ever told. And each Christmas time, televiewers thrilled to the retelling of an all-American yarn which Frank Capra retitled, It's a Wonderful Life. But this is the rest of the story. The motion picture, It's a Wonderful Life, is about a man named George Bailey on the brink of suicide, granted a unique opportunity to see what the world would have been like had he never been born. It's a Wonderful Life has become a classic, consistently listed by critics among the ten greatest movies ever made, but it did not become an American cultural phenomenon until the mid-1970s, and there's a reason for that, aside from its intrinsic greatness. For you see, when It's a Wonderful Life first appeared in theaters, December 1946, it received mixed reviews. It barely broke even at the box office received not one Academy Award. Its less-than-spectacular reception was a tremendous disappointment to Frank Capra. It was so generally ignored over the following three decades that in 1974, when its copyright came up for renewal, somebody in the studio office forgot or didn't bother to go to the trouble of renewing the copyright, and that's how one of the ten greatest motion pictures of all times slipped inobtrusively into what's called the public domain. And that's why America's undisputed favorite holiday movie became just that, because television stations can air it for free. And so they air it often, exposing it to millions. Experts guesstimate that the owners, had they held on to the copyright, It's a Wonderful Life would be earning them conservatively $26 million a year. In addition to the more than 1,200 radio and television stations airing it at least twice each year, there are 15 video companies selling the classic on cassette. They're cranking out copies for what amounts to the wholesale cost of blank tape. That's right. To paraphrase its original title, maybe that is the greatest gift of all. That we all get rich every Christmas time in lots of ways because we get to see and re-see and re-see It's a Wonderful Life. Just because somebody, maybe some bumbling guardian angel, failed to renew the copyright. By the way, had that whoever it was back there bothered to renew the copyright, it would have cost his employers a renewal fee of only 
of only $4. Merry Christmas. And now you know the rest of the story. Thanks for watching. Check out some of our other videos and don't forget to like the video and subscribe. Just click the logo on the left. The story. The rest of the story. Band leader, radio star Spike Jones. He knew gold when he heard it, and this was gold. Where on earth did this song come from, he asked band members and broadcasting colleagues. The reply, shrugs, all around. We ought to record it, he suggested, but there was a problem. A dispute between the musicians' union and recording studios, it was rapidly escalating into a war. As of New Year's Day 1948, the union was stonewalling the studios, and the date is now December 31, 1947, New Year's Eve. We're going to do this, Spike Jones exclaimed. We'd better do it now. So with the countdown clock ticking, he got his band together. He headed for the studio, leaving unanswered that intriguing question, where did that song come from in the first place? The real and remarkable answer is, is the rest of the story. For once upon an autumn time three years previous, in the sleepy little hamlet of Smithtown, Long Island... There was a grade school music teacher named Donald Gardner. The school at which Don taught was so small that all of the grades performed at the annual choral concert. And this particular year, he had selected a song for each grade to sing, except the second grade. And while pondering an appropriate selection, the second grade teacher, Betty Stoll, said something funny. Her entire class began to laugh. And at that moment, Don Gardner got the idea for a song a song that he would write for the second graders at Smithtown, and he did, and everybody loved it. Two years later, at the urging of friends, Don played the song for a music publisher. The publisher took it and sent copies here and there, hoping some popular artist might sing it. But instead it was ignored. Until a year after that, when Spike Jones discovered it, and he became determined to record it. Well, now it's New Year's Eve. It's 1947, half past 11 p.m., less than half an hour. The RCA studios will close for who knows how long. So if Spike Jones wants to record Don Gardner's song, he and his band will have to make that recording right now. At five minutes till midnight, they're finished. But RCA will not release that record for another 11 months. You see, the grammar school choral concert for which Don Gardner wrote that song was the 1944 Christmas program. And since the union battle with the recording studios raged all through 1948, Don Gardner's tune was the only new Christmas song released and played on the radio that year. And as a result, being the only one, it was broadcast day and night, day and night, became an instant holiday classic, and it has remained such to this day. For what had inspired music teacher Don Gardner as he prepared for his school's Christmas pageant back in 1944 was the laughter of the second graders, the broad smiles revealing a, a condition, a condition common to children of that age, affecting more than two-thirds of Don's second grade class, in fact. That's right. All those young smiles inspired the entreaty that begat a song entitled all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. You've heard that song most all your life. 
at some time during each Christmas time. But now you know the rest of the story. Thanks for watching. Check out some of our other videos and don't forget to like the video and subscribe. Just click the logo on the left. The rest of the story. It was a late Sunday night. The pale winter moon had risen high in the Manhattan sky. The sounds of city life were growing ever more distant now, as though some magical mist had descended upon the town. At least that's how it seemed to Mr. Bellin as he stood quietly at his window. That he were gazing out over a vanishing brigadoon. And as so often occurred in the hush of those late hours, the ghosts of much earlier ones gathered about him. And tonight in particular, the gentle, smiling phantoms of a family called the O'Haras. How very far away and long ago was Mr. Belline's childhood on the Lower East Side? And the tenement building at 330 Cherry Street? And the Irish neighbors who, despite their poverty, managed to make a Christmas such as no palace had ever seen? And the further Mr. Villeen wandered down the byways of the past, the quieter the evening became, until it felt as though the darkness itself had held its breath in a perfectly still and silent night. And suddenly it was another time. Every year there had been such a splendid Christmas tree at the O'Hara apartment. Mr. Villeen's boyhood self would stare at the shining ornaments for hours. His parents did not particularly approve. The Villeen family were Jewish immigrants, you see. In fact, Father was a cantor in the local synagogue. Yet mostly because Mr. and Mrs. O'Hara and their children made Christmas seem such glorious fun, Mr. Bellin, even long after he had left the steaming, teeming tenement on Cherry Street, would recall with great fondness a Jewish boy's Christmas times on the Lower East Side of New York. In his adult years, Mr. Bellin business traveled. He never really minded it, except when obligations kept him in Los Angeles over the holidays. It just didn't seem like Christmas, he said, with all of the palm trees and the sunshine. For there wasn't always would be a little corner of his heart reserved for that special season, a nostalgia that was born beneath a Christmas tree that had once sprouted in a slum. And at once the ghosts of Christmas's past danced away in the midst of their own forever, leaving the night perfectly still and silent as before. But then, soaring lightly out of the distant realms of space and time, came a melody, a haunting melisma of musical notes, eventually a procession of wistful words and poignant imagery accompanying it, and for breathless moments, Mr. Bellin listened as the music and the words invented themselves. It was the most beautiful song he'd ever heard, he exclaimed under his breath, and yet he was not actually hearing it at all, nor was he writing it, but rather he was listening intently, hoping with all of his might to remember the magical echoes when the angel voice were still once more. The faint light of dawn was announcing Monday morning when at last Mr. Bellin emerged from his trance, and yet by then the music and the lyrics that had blossomed somehow from his nocturnal reverie were emblazoned on his brain and would soon thereafter find a home in the hearts and minds of millions of us. Most or all of your life, you've known and loved the simple tune and the eloquent words that combined to comprise one of the world's most popular of all songs. And yet now and henceforth, whenever you hear it, I hope you'll recall the O'Hara family of Cherry Street and the neighbor boy Israel Bellin, whose name appears 
on the sheet music as Irving Berlin. The sheet music to the enchanted carol called White Christmas. And now you know the rest of the story. Thanks for watching. Check out some of our other videos and don't forget to like the video and subscribe. Just click the logo on the left. The man I'm talking about was not a Scrooge now. He was a kind, a decent, a mostly good man, generous to his family and upright in his dealings with other men, but he just did not believe in all of that incarnation stuff which the churches proclaim at Christmas time. It just did not make sense, and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He could not swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. He told his wife, I'm truly sorry to distress you, but I'm just not going with you to church this Christmas Eve. He said he'd feel like a hypocrite, that he'd much rather just stay home, but that he would wait up for them. So he stayed, and they went to the midnight service. Now, shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier. Then he went back to his fireside chair, began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound, and then another, then yet another. At first he thought somebody must be throwing snowballs against the living room window. But when he went to the front door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddled out there miserably in the snow. They had been caught in the storm in a desperate search for shelter. They had tried to fly through his large landscape window. That was what had been making the sound. Well, he couldn't let those poor creatures just lie there and freeze. So he remembered the barn where his children stabled their pony. That would provide a warm shelter. All he would have to do is direct the birds into that shelter. Quickly, he put on a coat and galoshes, and he tramped through the deepening snow to the barn, and he opened the doors wide. And inside the barn, he turned on a light so the birds would know the way in. But the birds did not come in. So he figured that food would entice them. He went back into the house and fetched some breadcrumbs and sprinkled those on the snow, making a trail of breadcrumbs to the yellow-lighted, wide-open doorway of the stable. But to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs. The birds just continued to flop around helplessly in the snow. He tried catching them. He could not. He tried shooing them into the barn by walking around them, waving his arms, but instead they scattered in every direction, every direction except into the warm-lighted barn. And that's when he realized that they were afraid of him. They were afraid of him. To him he reasoned, I'm a strange, terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them but to help them. But how? Any move he made tended to frighten them and confuse them. They just would not follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. And he thought to himself, if only I could be a bird now, if I could be a bird and mingle with them, 
and speak their language and tell them not to be afraid, then I could show them the way to the safe, warm barn. But I would have to be one of them, wouldn't I? So they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, the church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears. Above the sounds of the wind. And he stood there listening to the bells. Adeste Fidelis. Listening to the bells pealing the glad tidings of Christmas. And he sank to his knees in the snow. Paul Harvey, I hope for you and those you love, this will be a wonderfully merry Christmas.